Um, but we are underway, and I do mean underway. Episode 10 of Pounding the Table. It is Saturday night. So while all of our listeners are out there enjoying their weekends, know that Tony and I are completely locked in, just giving the people what they want. And it is episode 10 tonight, Avi, which is a mini milestone for us here at Pounding the Table. So we promise to come with the heat tonight, the best of our best. So tonight's Saturday night, but it's not just any Saturday night, is it, Avi? No, it is not, Tony. Tomorrow is the start of the NFL season. While we always will focus on 99.9% of the market, yours truly will add a quick tidbit here for the lock of the week, baby. For all of those degenerates that love sports, Avi Locks is going to come and play with the lock of the week in addition to everything that we bring week after week. And uh, just a quick disclaimer here, you know, we, we have to say this as much as we don't really want to, but, you know, the thoughts on this podcast are purely that of opinion and of our own personal investments. Everything said on every episode of Pounding the Table, as well as our Twitter account, are not and should never be used as financial advice, recommendations, or solicitation. And for those of you who are new here at Pounding the Table, it's a podcast by Avi Mash and yours truly, Anthony O'Hein, talking about the stock market, the art of options trading, and each week we analyze the news and provide our opinions and insights around how we think the markets will be impacted. We gotta do it. But what is not boring is all of these DMs we're getting from our listeners week on week telling us of how we've changed their lives from the podcast itself. And honestly, we do put in work. It's about 10 plus hours every single week. So we 100% appreciate all of you guys who have donated, whatever you like, 99 cents, $5, $9.99. We've seen it all. So really appreciate anyone that continues to hit that support button on Anchor. So your donations are going to continue to help support the show, ensure we keep bringing you that fire entertainment and all of our opinions revolving around this market every single week. So Tony, how did we do last week? I know a lot of the stocks went lower as you leaned in, said we might be reaching the top. I think it was about two episodes ago. Markets are moving quickly, though, and showing some signs of life, perhaps maybe at their bottom. I know one gem in particular that saved my account from this downturn was an absolute ripper magoo. I'm talking face ripping, absolute savage pick. If you follow us on Twitter, which all of you guys should be by now, I'll probably stop talking, let the goat do his thing. Tony, what stock saved all of our accounts? Nanox, ticker symbol N-N-O-X. What an incredible run. We got in at the IPO and we mentioned this, I think two episodes ago, we talked about this from 20 to 67. I mean, that's like an incredible run. That's a three bagger, 230% in three weeks. Like You don't get that on stocks really, unless you pick an incredible pick. And that's like, I'm going to say that's one of my best picks ever really in a huge run. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, is this the Jumia 2.0 kind of situation? Well, first of all, I'm going to pound this one more time. Like you had a triple in Jumia. If you lost money on Jumia, you're doing something wrong, not us. And <laughs> once again, here with Nanox, right? Nanox has just tripled, right? Like you got it from 20, it's now 67. Not a single person should lose a dollar on Nanox of their initial investment, right? Like I had a very large position in Nanox and I took off one sixth at 40, one six at 50 and one six at 60, like a couple of dollars over each. Cause I saw them break out over those like round number bases. And now I'm down to half my position and I sold them at about 150% gain. So it is impossible for me to lose overall net net on my Nanox position. And if you are concerned at all that it could be a Jumia, which I genuinely don't think it is at all. This company is probably going to go to 200. I think that's, you know, been my price target since this all started. Take your profits. I mean, like you, you can be happy at a triple, in two or three weeks. And, you know, who knows, maybe it goes lower, maybe it just keeps ripping to a hundred, but no one ever went broke taking a little bit of a profit there, especially on your initial cost basis, which had you done with Jumia, you'd be happy because you'd still have a hundred percent gain. But regardless, Nanox continues to just do some fantastic deal. You know, they're inking deals all over the world. Still, they just had news last week. They signed another deal of 
630 nanox systems in Mexico with uh, SPI Medical. So that's just adding to their global international base at this point. I know I think there are somewhere around 5,000 units, maybe 6,000 now that have been pre-signed. And once they get that FDA approval in quarter one, 2021, which should not be that hard at all. I mean, think about how many FDA approvals and patents ISRG has to go through. And I did just tweet out that, you know, my pounder thesis pick, which was ISRG last week, could be an interesting company to consider maybe acquiring Nanox here. You know, we were talking about this, you know, thinking, well, these companies are both, you know, leaders in their relative spaces in very similar overall space. And ISRG is way bigger than Nanox. And I would not be surprised for ISRG to just want to own that medical space in this like high-tech, artificially intelligent software as a service kind of realm. So it's very possible this happens here. That's just my little prediction. Another possibility is Nanox will just completely turn into a healthcare provider of these various systems in different areas. So right now they're doing scans. Like in the future, they may pivot and do different types of things with the same technology. So I love this one long-term and I won't be getting rid of any more. You mentioned ISRG started at $4, no? Yeah, it started very, very, I mean, I think it did a few splits since then, but regardless, it's up thousands of percent since its IPO. And it's not even a huge market cap right now. I think it's 60 billion or so, somewhere around there. That one's got a lot of room to run, in my opinion. I I could see ISRG becoming a half a trillion dollar company in five to 10 years. I think a lot of their growth slowed down because of COVID and elective surgeries weren't on the priority list, of course, since people are dying and needing to be put on ventilators. And like that took precedence. But I do think Nanox is in a similar realm of you know, they're both providing these like high tech, artificially intelligent healthcare systems. It's a spade of a spade kind of situation here. They work together, but on their own, they'll both thrive as well. Love it. Another one you had talked about and have been pounding the table on is OTRK. Went from 46 to 84 at its high. Yeah, I'm going to keep pounding the table on this one too, because nothing's really changed in my thesis for it. It did get added to the NASDAQ, which is such a bullish thing to happen, you know, for a stock like this. You know, I, I, I like seeing that kind of thing happen. It just gives more credence to the fact that it's like a legitimate and really big growing company. So I won't be selling any more of this. I've already done the same thing as I did with Jumia and Anox is, is taking profit on these huge runs, right? Like 46 to 84. That's about a double. You know, you once again, you should never lose money on this investment if you've already taken it from when we pounded the table first. You know, a lot of people are like, well, is it a good time to get into Nanox now? Is it a good time to get into OTRK now? Well, I can't answer that because I'm not even thinking about that because I'm already in, right? Like you you try to catch a running train. Sometimes you're right. Sometimes you get stomped by the train on the road track. So you don't want to be in either situation. It's better to be ahead of the game than try to play the game in the fourth quarter. I think that's massive. At the end of the day, ultimately, everyone needs to manage their own account. I know last week you had mentioned that we're starting to get to a little top, which for optimistic Tony, I was like, oh my God, is the world going to end? However, you know, completely crazy market. Overall, what is the rest of the stocks that we've been pounding the table? How are those looking right now? Yeah. So, I mean, of course, when you call a top in the market at any point, right, that's going to be a situation where the majority of stocks will retrace, you know, they'll either go back to their moving averages or they'll go back to their volume shelves. So they'll go back to like overall long-term horizontal or angular trend lines. All that kind of stuff happens. And it's always, as we said in the last podcast, based on where the indices will bottom. Some stocks will bottom before, of course. You know, that that does happen. And you can see the relative strength. But right now, you know, many of these stocks have generally trended lower. And that is typical after massive runs, right? You've had a lot of these stocks go three, four, five X. This is the first real consolidation pullback period. And it's really not even that big if you really think about how far they've run. Like they're at levels not seen since like three weeks ago, relaxed kind of thing. But some winners do continue to hold up a portfolio if you diversify and you average it properly, right? So Nanox and OTRK doubled and tripled. So if you're, the rest of your holdings went down, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25%, if they're mostly in tech, that will significantly hold your portfolio's balance well. Um, and of course, if you feel like these things have run a ton, you can sell some of those, get back into the ones that are lower, and then just even out your portfolio's percentage better. So it's something that I like to do myself. I look for a lot of these technical patterns, these pennants that are now forming on a lot of these software stocks at the bottom. If you look at SQ, Mealy, Livongo, all of these are really looking kind of similar in terms of they're just basing in a consolidated pennant right now at the low. So that's not really super bearish for me. Of course, if we get some big gap downs, I'll start thinking, well, my lower targets on the markets are 3280 uh, and 3232 is like my absolute bullish bearish line in the sand. If that breaks under, I would become much more of a bear. 
However, nothing has really changed for me in terms of like what I'm thinking about interest rates, you know, being low for the next five years. You want to be in stocks for yield as well as the Fed stimulus. Like if we continue to go lower into the election, it really would almost be a certainty in my mind that the Federal Reserve will continue to do more stimulus or Trump will force some uh, type of congressional stimulus to happen. So as long as these stocks don't continue to fall aggressively, and even if they do, I think the Fed will step in. But, you know, make sure that you keep your portfolio in a good balance kind of setting. With the election coming up, things have been getting super crazy. Can't expect stocks to always go up. People have unfortunately gotten completely wrecked. So huge question that I've gotten from a lot of my friends is, what do you do when you get yourself, quote unquote, pounded? And then we're saying this not in a good way, but how do you unpound yourself here? Yeah, we're taking a little creative liberty here. We're going with PG. Using, yeah, PG. We're using cuss words in our own format just to like make it more appropriate. If you want to listen to the in the car with your children, shout out to the people who have DM me and said that they want that. So, you know, we're going to try it out. If you guys don't like it and we see viewership drop down, we'll come back even more aggressive next week. <laughs> you know, but in terms of that question, right, like it happens. Like you have a crazy huge run and it even happened to myself a bit, right? Like I call the top and I didn't think it'd be such a severe drop. For me, it would have been better to just go fully cash and then reinvest on the lower drops. But if you've already been wrecked and gotten yourself in a tough position, right, you should have these mental stops, which I've like set to myself and set on my portfolio saying, where do I want to be risk on, risk off, de-risk, or just completely chill and kind of wait it out? So how much do you want to give up of your overall holdings to say, okay, like I'll relax, I'll stop playing options, I'll stop doing risky stocks, trading, I'll stop doing spreads, and I'll just hold my core portfolio. So, you know, that's really something that I think I want to harp on here is like, I know people have these stocks that they want to hold long term, and they're super important to them. And they believe that they're going to be the Nanoxes and the, the 510 Apple, Amazon, Facebook kind of trades. And that's fine if you want to hold those long terms, because what happens sometimes is you get out and you don't get back in. And then in five years, you're kicking yourself. So if you can take the brunt of that, that's okay. But I'm saying like a lot of people here have been over trading. And like, I've, I've done this myself a little bit as well. You know, it's, it's a hard market to be in right now. If you're trading speculatively, if you're investing in your know, dollar cost averaging, making sure your portfolio is just in really what you want to be in. And you're not in a super risky position where let's say you're like 50% leaps, 50% stocks, right? Like this is for me right now, not knowing the direction I'm happier to be in the majority, like 80% of stocks and just hold that versus being in like you know, 50% options and leaps as I was when we were risking it up. And that's a different thing. You know, you want to be risk on when the risk is to the upside. And when the market's, you know, kind of in a consolidating, you don't know where it's going to go, maybe way lower, way higher, make sure you can live to trade another day. It's better to put yourself in a position where you'll make less and lose less than to be in a risk on position where it's dependent on the market favors. Because I can't even tell you exactly where we're going right now. So, you know, I don't think many people can. Yeah, I think that brings up a huge point, right? Like play the environment. We are in craziness. We're heading into an election and we got COVID going on. This is not a normal market. You can't look back in history and say, oh, this is normal. We can look at the trend lines by any imagination. Every trade is unique. And if you have to go in and you're falling, you're falling, you're not going to throw a 10-team parlay out there or some crazy weekly option. You're going to lose money. And so if you're playing these stocks, it feels much better knowing that some of these great brands and great companies that you are investing on, think of those as investments. So maybe over the next three months, they may go down, but over five years, those are going to be massive. So take a look again, going back to previous episodes, if you truly have that feeling, hang tight with those. Are we super bullish heading into elections? Are we bearish? Are we basing do you have any change of opinion since last week yeah i mean like my opinion still here like i think we have really really strong ranges to break out of 3350 on the downside was broken and now you know 3310 was our recent low on the s&p 500 but i think if 3300 breaks we've got two really really strong support levels 3280 and 3232 so 3232 is my like very very strong like if that breaks things could actually continue to change and drop um, once again, I do think the Fed will step in. I think that people will realize that you can't get yield anywhere else and you want to be back in stocks. And the majority of this obviously is tech, right? Like, So you want to be watching the cues. You want to watch the NASDAQ and see how that's reacting. One interesting thing I, I do want to talk about here is like I like to set myself a mental uh, like dollar amount or percent stop to where I'm like, okay, well, if whatever happens, that I, whatever I'm doing, you know, let's say that the market 
rips and I dive or the market dives and I rip or whatever it is, if I get below a certain level where, you know, where my portfolio is, I will probably cut bait there because I've seen like in March, it can get way, way worse. And, you know, even, you know, just because in June it got bad and then we pop back up, you want to be in a position where if it gets way, way worse, you're fine. And if it gets way, way better, you're going to still be fine. Maybe you're not going to be gleaming over your new Ferrari if it goes back up, but it's better to have a, a sedan that's not a Ferrari than living in a cardboard box. So I think that, you know, right now we're kind of determining where the market's going. It doesn't know itself. It's basing, you know, we, we are getting some bottoming patterns that are starting to look a little bit better, but unless we start breaking back over 3,400 and running, this could shop for a little while, especially into the elections. You know, we have quad witching next week, which is just basically a bunch of different things are expired indices or rolling over and expiring stocks, monthly options. And this, this all happens simultaneously, which does hold the market and, you know, it, it impacts it a lot. So once again, just consider yourself as just being part of the environment and not wanting to get screwed, whether the direction is in your favor or not in your favor. It's just more about taking the risks that you're appropriate with versus being super predictive and thinking we're going to rip or we're going to dive or we're not going to do either. Quad witching was something we brought up, I think, episode one or two. Remind our listeners what that is. I know, you know I'm in software sales. Obviously, every single quarter matters. Explain what that means for some of these institutional investors. And what does that quad witch actually mean for the retail investors that are listening to the podcast? Yeah, so it happens once every quarter, so four times a year. And what happens is basically like stocks that expire on Friday, the normal indis- the normal stocks, they expire. So that's one uh, options that are traded monthly expire. That's two. Indices roll over. Indices also expire that day and for you know, that roll date. So people have to sell the September futures and they have to buy the next futures. So all that happens simultaneously. And that really does play a big part in the market's movements. Now, typically what happens is we dive into the roll date and a little bit after the roll date, and then we'll rip up the week after. So that's kind of what I'm thinking might happen here, especially because I know that that's definitely been playing a strong part in the markets. But once again, though, sentiment has gotten a very, very bearish recently. And every time sentiment gets so bearish, thinking we're going to crash to 2000 SPX, I start getting bullish right away because think about how many people were so crazy bullish when we topped. That's what made me think we were topping. So this is kind of happening a little earlier than I would expect. A lot of people are capitulating way faster than usual. So I do think that the bottom is going to be coming this week. And you know, if I'm wrong, and if we break those levels, of course, I'll change my opinion. If things are not daisies and rainbows, what is the strategy during these times of uncertainty? Avi, this is definitely not a time of daisies and rainbows. I would say that the last few months have been just the best market I've ever seen in my life. But right now, it's a time of uncertainty just because we have been you know, crashing since the top. And We've just been consolidating and a lot of money can be lost trying to trade in the range. Whereas like you can just wait for the trend to define itself. And that's like a huge thing. I think people just overthink and they just are like, well, we're going to bottom today. We're going to bottom today. We're going to bottom today. You could just wait until we actually bottom and then start playing the uptrend, right? Like you can keep playing the volatility right now. It's a sell the rip and sometimes buy the dip market. We've just been basing in a, like a hundred point range between 33 something and 34 something. So it's about a hundred points both ways, but one thing that people need to realize is this is the time where you're going to be happy holding stocks versus just over trading and swing trading, you know, options and spreads and leaps and everything like sure. If you've got some very long-term leaps that you want to hold, that's that's okay. You I mean you can even hedge those with weekly puts and such. But for me, like I think of this kind of market as in so I, I think of this kind of like horse betting, obviously. You you go to the stables or the track and you're betting on, you know, Liberty and she wins and you know, you keep hitting three weeks in a row, you make a ton of cash. What are you going to do now? You're going to bet triple down on Liberty. She's going to break her leg. And and then you're not going to win that last race. But what if you bought your own horse instead? Right? So that's what I like to think here. Like you play options, spreads, swing trades, these riskier things when the market's trending. And then you notice a trend change and you kind of stop doing that. And you continue to add to those positions as you dollar cost average, right? So you can accumulate cash or if you make a ton of money on an options trade, just turn that into stock. Like the ability for you to lose 100% on your options is almost a guarantee, right? Like if you're wrong, you're going to lose 100%. End of story. If you're wrong on your stock, what are you going to lose? Like even in this crash, all the big growth stocks went down max like 30% on the biggest ones. And so a lot of them are down like 10. I think the average of all the things that I like to hold are down like 
16% or so, the actual stock holdings. Of course, I have like other positions that have drawn down significantly more because they're options. But just the specific stocks themselves, they hold up far better, right? Because the market only went down, what, like 10% or so. It didn't go down 100% like your options will. So when you go to the track and you keep betting on Liberty, take some of Liberty's winnings and buy yourself like a Liberty 2.0 and then just keep doing that. Maybe you can own a horse racing track one day yourself (laughs) instead of continuing to bet and then getting your ass blown up. So that's kind of what I like to think here in this like uncertain time. And you should be thinking about this as we're running and as we're diving. Like, let's say you're playing calls on the upside and you're playing puts and you're swing trading and you're doing verticals and you're out here just like Mr. Miyagiing these markets take the wax off and throw a little bit into like Liberty, your own horse and buy some of these core holding stocks that you want to hold long-term. Cause I guarantee you that will hold up better than you trading options and going balls to the walls every week. And half the time you're going to lose your butt on it just because the volatility and the markets are moving up and down. They suck out premiums and you're going to get killed. So I'm just going to run through like my desired long-term portfolio. I own most of these. I want to get bigger in some of them. I want to get smaller in some of them as they run a lot, but I'll just like lay it out for you guys. And I might even post it. I, I did these like flow charts from simply wall.street a little bit ago on my um, Twitter. And I've actually reduced my holdings down to just a core uh, like 22, 24 stocks with one big leap position that I, I intend to hold, which is IWM for 2022. I think that's one of the markets that haven't, you know, one of the indices that hasn't been killed a lot. So I'll continue to hold that. But the stocks that I do love long-term, and I'll tell you my top five, SE Limited, C Limited. So the ticker symbol is SE. Another one in that top five is SQ. So that's Square, Square Cash. Mercado Libre, Mealy, M-E-L-I. That's my top three holdings. And then, you know, Livongo, of course, L-V-G-O. And I hold Livongo. Of course, you can hold TDOC. They're going to merge, so it'll be the same thing. But you know, in the weird random event that they don't have the merger go through, I would much prefer to hold Livongo as that'll be really, really jumping in price. Uh, whereas TDOC will probably rise, but not as much, of course. Like Livongo is like a higher growth and SAS play that most people want to be in. So that'll get a lot of more attention. Um, of course, I got a couple other names here. I'm just going to list that quickly. You got Fastly, CrowdStrike, Rocket Mortgages, APPS, so apps, uh, Nanox, of course. That's actually in my top five now just because of how big it's grown iPob, the SPAC, IPOC, the SPAC, ISRG have just recently been adding more to that in my stock position, Etsy, E-T-S-Y, SPG, of course, I like this because it pays a nice dividend, and as well, it's like the fact that it's down so much recently, and I think that malls will recover in time, and once we've been talking, we've been talking about this a lot, like they're going to revolutionize and do different things, Fiverr has just been a beast, it's actually at all-time highs despite all this market crash, so I'll continue to hold that. DocuSign is one that ran away from me, and I've finally been able to build a position in it. I'll continue to hold my OTRK on track, NVTA, so Invitae Therapeutics. That's a you know that's a really interesting company for me long term. CRISPR Therapeutics, another one I like to hold right here is Futu, F-U-T-U. That one had a great earnings report recently, and I think that it should be way higher if there wasn't all these like U.S. Chinese uh, tensions happening. Progeny, another one I like. P-G-N-Y is a ticker symbol. API, so Agora, that's you know a Chinese Zoom competitor kind of thing. Pinduo Duo, PDD, recently been adding this one. It had really good earnings and then it went down about 15%. And that's exactly what I like to buy just because it shows that the valuation of that company has run a little bit and it's been over what people fairly value it at. So getting in on those drops when the earnings weren't bad, um, but it did correct itself is a good opportunity. I'll continue to hold my position in Redfin. And I've actually started selling a little bit of Redfin to buy into EXPI. So similar play in that industry. Uh, I just like to have both of them because I've seen a lot of traction around this one recently. One, another one I like to hold long-term. One stock I want to hold for the next five to 10 years is BLFS. I think that one has the potential to really supply the majority of these genetic editing and like, you know, modification companies like CRISPR and Editas and such. So Definitely a play on that area. Spade is a spade kind of thing for me. And the last bit of my portfolio that I really want to hold long-term besides those IWM leaps that I mentioned earlier are my SPACs. And like my top three SPACs right now are IPOB, so IPOB and IPOC, IPOC. Those are both Chamath SPACs. So that guy has already run out space, which did fantastic, 10 to 42. So I think these will you know, probably have a similar run to that. Just a matter of time on when that happens. Um, and one more I like to hold is PSTH. So that's Bill Ackman's spec. And Bill Ackman is really like kind of came up for me in the way that I view him. You know, he's great. Then he was horrible. And now he's like really kind of great again because of his bet on uh, you know volatility. He took 27 million to like 2.6 billion. So 
I kind of, you know, I'm betting on him. When you're betting on SPACs, you're really betting on management a lot of the time. So that's pretty much what I like to think about for my long-term holdings in terms of like my portfolio wish list. I don't have the right size I want for all these yet, but as I sell out of my, you know, the rest of my other positions that I don't want to hold for the next five to 10 years, um, I will be adding more and more to these as they drop or, you know, if they rip and my other stuff rips, I'll be happy to sell that for a profit and just buy these a little higher. So Tony, what I captured from that as your average retail investor is to kind of get married, right? And none of these one night stands per se, you'll have that great night at the bar, but getting married is beautiful. (laughs) And you're kind of into this polygamy, right? There's a lot of these stocks that you want to get married to long term. We've talked a little bit about crypto in the past. You brought up this interesting idea that crypto has now become an indicator for stocks. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. Someone on my uh, Twitter actually posted this out and brought it to my attention. I believe his name is actually Due Diligence. Really interesting point, though, he made. He was talking about Bitcoin's one-year correlation of the S&P 500 index is hitting record highs as the leading cryptocurrency continues to trade in lockstep with financial traditional markets. So that's really interesting to me. And I was looking more a little bit at the data here, and I saw that it did slightly lead the crash in February. So crypto did sell off a little bit before stocks did as well as in June, and as well as in September. And I find that really interesting because any indicator you can use, right? Like you're not going to just say, I'm going to buy stocks because Bitcoin's going up. But let's say you have like five other indicators and you add this one too, you know, it's just more pieces of the pie to make sure you get like fed properly and get in the right direction of the market. You know, if you have like half your indicators lining up, maybe there's still some uncertainty. If you've got all your indicators lining up, then you've got the green light go to buy, buy, buy. Or, you know, if they're the other way, then you have the red light go to sell, sell, sell. But it did start going up recently. I've got some good technicals right now. I've been looking at the chain link chart and I've been looking at the Bitcoin and Ethereum charts. And both of those have been popping uh, over the weekend and a few days recently. So I do think that maybe if this is real, then the markets will pop as a result. Just not saying that it's because cryptos lead, right? But because crypto's market cap in general, all of the cryptocurrencies is, you know, sub 250 billion or something now. It's, it's quite low. And you think about Apple by itself is like $2 trillion. So it's easier to move those. So if people, if you see buying pressure in any asset class, right, like you can see people are starting to buy cryptocurrencies. And if that's been leading at any point, maybe that'll just be a cause for the markets to be uh, leading to. It, just, it correlates together. One thing I like to say is like certain stocks do lead the entire sector, even if they're not the biggest ones. So for instance, I always like to look at Mercado Libre just because it does have a smaller market cap, smaller float, less traded than most of these other big SAS companies like Shopify. And if they can't take Mercado Libre positive on the day, it's going to be almost impossible for Shopify to go positive just because it requires more buying pressure to make Shopify go positive and run. So you want to look at these stocks that are easier to move or asset classes such as cryptocurrency that are easier to move overall. I keep hearing opportunity cost of capital in the back of my head as we Fast forward here just a bit, and we'll get into a little bit more of that in a second. One of my favorite rappers, Tyga, who says, Rack, Rack City. Here at Pound the Table, we have a different take where it's Spack, Spack City B, because we're a PG-13 show now. Talk to us a little bit about some of your favorite Spacks. You had mentioned iPob and iPoc. Where are you looking here for those? IPOB, IPOB. So one of Chama's SPACs I do hold myself. That's been getting some rumors recently. Some people were saying that they were going to be merging with Neuralink, which if that happens, I will absolutely load the boat sideways on that. And I already did buy a significant amount because I do consider SPACs pretty safe investments versus anything else. They do have that floor of their cash that's behind the blank check company. And right now, people are saying that it's going to be open door. So another you know SAS real estate kind of play. Either of those would probably do really well. I think Shamath is a, you know, a great leader, a great like visionary kind of guy. I mean, the dude bought like $100 million in Bitcoin like eight years ago. So, I mean, like, he, he knows things. And I put my money with good management in SPACs because that's all that really matters. You know, sure, some guy who maybe has no track record is going to hit it out of the park. But I would rather invest with a guy who I know has already hit it out of the park 10 different ways to Sunday than some random Joe Schmo who might hit it out of the park. So these are the reasons why I'm holding these specifically. I'll just tell you some other ones that I think have the similar management structure and experience that have already done well in SPAC space. Uh, those are PSTH. I just mentioned that. That's Bill Ackman's SPAC. CCX, LFAC, HCAC, LCA, and CCXX. 
Now, all of those, in my opinion, have the potential to be really, really big SPACs. And that's a lot to do with the management and the fact that they've had experience in doing SPACs before. Uh, you would really want to trust somebody far more that's taken a SPAC 300%, 400% plus than somebody who has never done a SPAC before. Tony, we got one of our favorites, Sheikhtal, who's an absolute legend. Tony, SPACs are hot. Sheikhtal, who is one of our favorites, he came up with the first pound in the table thesis pick. He wanted to know your thoughts here on SPACs, such as VTAC, which entered it in Nicola, which ran to 90, Shill, S-H-L-L, and G-R-A-F, Graph. So after the merger with Fisker, it's now valued at $3.5 billion. What's going on with all these EVs? I think a lot of people are getting into Nicola right now. And I, I, I can't for the life of me understand, right? Like, I did play this as well as I possibly could have. I like was loading between 12 and 14 and I literally sold at 93 and I sent you a screenshot because you didn't believe me that I sold at the absolute top, but I did. Yeah. I'm just not going to get back in it. Like there's just no point for me to get back in it. There's way better plays in the market. I think that everyone like, you know, you're buying Nikola and there's so much negativity against it, right? Like it's like buying Tesla First of all, Nikola is not Tesla. And I'm not, I feel bad even saying that in the same sentence because like Tesla is an actual real good company. And if they actually have a really good, well-working truck, it'll probably do fine long run. But it's valued in $20, $30 billion or whatever it is now. I don't even know because I know it's high. And, and for me, that's just not worth it in my opinion. So no, I am not an investor in Nikola in the slightest right here. Shill, S-H-L-L, that SPAC did fantastic. Shout out to Jake Barrett. He murdered that. Uh, he you know, bought a ton of shares and made a lot of money off of that. So that's a great play for him. Graph and uh, SPAC are both on the list of the uh, SPACs I initially mentioned, I think episode two or episode one. Uh, those are both doing really well. I think SPAC does have the potential to go way higher. I think it's still a little bit over, undervalued from where it should be right now. Haven't that, heard of uh, BMR. Fisker. Yeah, and looking at SPAC, like what are you saying about the market cap closing just over you know a billion? They merged with Fisker, and I, I actually looked into that. I like that deal a lot more than Nikola, especially when you see all these like short sellers and these bad reports coming out on Nikola. And like, fine, maybe they're real, maybe they're not, and I don't want to be around to find out either way. You you take a stock from fourteen to ninety three, you sell, and you want to get back in. That's fine, but I knew right when I was selling it that this is the highest it might ever go. Maybe it goes way higher, but I don't care. Like I'm happy with what, like 8X, that's fine. I'm out, I'm done. But SPAC is just getting started, right? And I think that they're in a similar space and get a similar valuation or whatever it is. Why not? This whole entire space is going crazy ever since Tesla. And now you've got all these wannabes coming out and trying to be the next Tesla. I'll tell you what, there is no next Tesla. Tesla is the next Tesla. And you can disagree with me all you want. What Mark Spiegel of Stanful Capital has been disagreeing with me since I was 16 and he's, his broke ass is living under a bridge. So I'm happy to keep disagreeing on people's thoughts on Tesla. But I would not be a Nikola buyer here. I would much rather be buying SPAC. And I know GM did take a nice 11% stake in Nikola. You know, I don't think that was like, I mean, I guess for GM, fine. Like you might as well now. You missed buying a 10% stake in Tesla years ago. But why not play these things before everyone else does, right? You know when these SPACs are IPOing, you know it takes sometimes nine to 12 months or whatever for them to get a merger. You can position yourself in these as soon as the news hits of what it could potentially be. You know, Nikola didn't go to 93 in one day. It went to like 14 or 16. You can get in as the news is happening instead of being the guy who's bag holding at 50 or 60. Needless to say, SPACs are hot. IPOs are even hotter. Let's discuss some of these IPOs. We have people from all different territories of maturity when it comes to investing. Real quick, don't take more than 30 seconds, but can you just explain how IPOs work? More importantly, a lot of retail investors do not realize that the big institutions buy in first and that that's massive. Like the retail investors are not getting the traditional quote unquote IPO price. So an IPO is just basically when a company wants to go public and it wants to sell a portion of its stake in, in the company. It wants to sell shares of that company to public investors. And so that company negotiates a sale of its own stock to one or more of these investment banks. So you'll have somebody like Goldman Sachs or Credit Suisse or JP Morgan, and they're underwriting for that public offering. So they're the ones that are kind of running the show for that. And so because they're doing that, they do get a, a bunch of stocks at like that price, quite you know cheap compared to how much they've been opening on the markets recently. Like you saw Big C 24 to 68 open. I mean, that's insane. And, and they were getting it at 24. So that kind of happens to a lot of people. So if you're a retail investor and let's say you don't have, I don't know what the limit is, but 
something like 500,000 in your accounts. Like when I get into IPOs that are available on my platform, like I know that most people wouldn't be able to get into those IPOs. And so they want public investors to be able to buy their share. So they sell a portion of that firm to public investors and like an equity percentage, right? So you get 35 million shares at $15 price and that's X percent of all the total shares that exist in that company. So that company, whichever one that wants to go public, negotiates a sale of its own stock to one or more investment banks that are the underwriters for their offering. So basically, like let's say Goldman Sachs is underwriting whatever it is, and Credit Suisse is underwriting, or sometimes they'll do it together and like joint. So they'll get shares. They can get it at that super cheap price and flip it if they want to underwrite and own those shares. And also what can happen there is like they give it up to the brokerages who gives it out to the retail. And then when that happens, you have to have a certain amount of money in your account to participate in those offerings. And the majority of like, you know, the everyday retailer who's got like five, 10,000 in their account are not really able to participate in those until it already goes public. So these small number of underwriters each sell their stock to a much larger pool of investors in the public market. So if they're getting it at 24 and they sell it right away at 68, they're going to make a killing that day, which is exactly what happened to Big C. Um, so that, I mean, that's kind of what IPO does. And this is why we're going to be telling you a little bit more about why to get into certain ones and why other ones look a little bit riskier based on the price. SPACs are cool, Tony. IPOs have been even hotter. So one of our fans, Marina Bassanoi, mentioned, I wish I'd seen your analysis on Nanox, so N-N-O-X, which we've been talking about nonstop here. She would have bought more. But now she's looking for some thoughts on Snowflake and Palantir. So Tony, I know we touched on this, I think it was last week or the week before, but With snow, everyone and their mother is talking about this. What do you specifically look for in IPOs to determine whether or not you're going to get in? And of course, with this question, will snow be one of those? Yeah, so I've done a lot of research into snow. Um, I like a lot of things about it, but my only concern is the fact that everyone and their mother is talking about it. I've been looking a lot into the company itself. I do like a lot of their metrics. I mean, like you know, there's the rule of 40 in software, and this one's got a 61% on that, where it's the combined revenue growth rate and EBITDA percentage rate equal or exceed 40%. So this is that 61% means it's growing strong and it looks pretty good on a like fundamental basis. The average annual revenue per customer is 111,000. So I mean, they're getting pretty big businesses, not really those small businesses that are at risk for a lot of these things that are happening now. Um, One thing that's really interesting I like about them is that they have this 158% dollar-based net revenue retention rate for each person. So if they just didn't add any new people, they would get existing growing revenues from who they already have. There's a lot of cool things going on there with Snow, but I do think that since everyone and their mother is talking about it, I mean, like, I've heard 20 people who barely talk about stocks say, should I get into the snow IPO? And that for me is a little bit of a red flag. So for instance, Nanox, we didn't really like see everyone hyped up about Nanox and that's why it was priced fairly. Everyone was hyped up about Big C and it was not priced fairly at the open. And I think the same thing will happen with snow here. I think it'll open up probably higher than the intended range, which is supposed to be 75 to 85. So I'm going to be holding off on this one. I also don't really love the revenue multiple here. It's got 56.7 times. That's like, it's pretty high in this space. I mean, I know they're going to keep growing and they're doing well. They have 173% last year revenue growth, 132.6% growth for the first six months of this year. But I do think that what's going to happen is you'll get all these institutions that are selling into the profit and people will be getting off as soon as it pops up initially on IPO. And I'll be looking to buy the dip around after that happens. So obviously, on a lot of these names that we're going to be looking at here, I know that they're going to have either a really, really high value to revenue multiple, which for me, like, I don't really like it if it's over, you know, 30, 35 in the max of like the cloud, SAS, anything like that kind of space. And like, you've got Big C and you've got these other ones like Snow we're talking about now, they're going like 60 times. That's pretty high for me. And like, I know the valuation is just like, I guess, a concept in this interest rate free market right now. But you have to consider like when these things IPO, there's going to be people who are like, wow, that's that's going to you know quickly get overvalued if it just rises 20 or 30%, then you've got like a 70 times multiple and nothing's changed about the company. So what I'll be looking for is that initial sell-off that's going to happen after the hype is over, specifically for Snowflake, because I, I do want to own it. It's just, I don't want to own it right away. I'm not going to be pounding the table if it opens up 25% higher than the IPO price. That's going to be okay for me. I don't mind missing it. Fair enough, Tony. We will keep Pounders informed uh, when we do jump into snow. But let's hop on over. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you were going to love that one. Hop on over to Frog real quick. Tell us a little bit about Frog. Is that actually the name of the IPO or are we missing something here? 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the name of the IPO. So yeah, Avi, the company's name is going to be JFrog. I'm pretty sure the ticker symbol is going to be Frog. They're developing an integrated and full feature system to enable DevOps teams to quickly and easily develop and deploy new software releases. Everyone's out here with the software craze, software as a service, cloud computing, all of this. And everyone is just nonstop looking for new ways to develop and deploy services. So I'm actually interested in this IPO. And um, you know, I was looking at the numbers a little bit better. 64% revenue growth last year. 50% growth in the six months ending in uh, June 2020. So not horrible for me in terms of the valuation only being at $3.1 billion. And it's got an enterprise value to revenue multiple of about 24.5 times. And so that if you think about that, that's like less than half as expensive as Snowflake is relatively. So that's something that's more appealing to me just because I don't think as many people will pile into it insanely. And it won't be opening way, way higher than the intended IPO price. So I might actually get into this one right away. Another one I'll quickly talk about, because I know we did touch on this in previous weeks, is Palantir. So just looking at the numbers, in 2019, the revenue was up over 25%, about $724 million. The company is now valued at $20 billion. The first six months of 2020 were $481 million of that. That's going to be about 25% higher. This is things going to continue to grow. The EV versus sales is about 20x, so that's not bad considering all the metrics, definitely slower revenue growth. For those of you who do not know, Palantir is this national security business. So unlike the common perception of defense contractors like Stark Industries type companies when they're building robots and arc reactors, Palantir concerns itself with data analysis. So in short, consider the hundreds of discrete moments that may go into a terrorist plot to blow up the National Monument. Plane tickets are bought, parts of the bombs are purchased. This is getting a little crazy. We're probably going to get surfaced here by Palantir even talking about it. But you have to think about all of that. And Palantir is collecting all that data. So again, Palantir software is designed to do all of this. So that's really what Palantir software is designed to do. So it's collecting and synthesizing all of this data. Helps the government employees to stop plots before they're actually carried out through execution. The AI is not the only thing running the show. So reportedly, the hands of human beings are firmly at the helm of everything. That's going to protect some of these civil liberties. Palantir software is the best on the market today. It works extremely well. The company counts among its successes, derailing a massive global web of cyber intrusion from the Chinese government. It literally predicted the locations of explosive devices in Afghanistan before bombs could go off. So it's not only the government, though. I know I've seen a lot of brands uh, that are using this as well. And it's not just the government that's actually using them. JP Morgan, for instance, is using them to fight fraud. So there's a number of different ways where they can start to scale across enterprises. You know, I'm a huge fan of cybersecurity with CrowdStrike. And so this is just another tool in the arsenal that I think is going to be a a very interesting company to take a look at here in the future. Well done, Avi. Thank you, brother. Let's jump into Unity Software uh, for the last IPO we want to discuss. So yeah, Avi, Unity is really interesting to me. I like the fact that it's like, you know, a tech company that's going into gaming and trying to revolutionize the space a little bit. They're known for making software to create video games, but the company hopes to make the world more like a video game by pushing its platform to designers from non-gaming fields. So it's estimated that Unity will offer its shares at about $34 to $42 a piece, giving it a valuation of about $11 billion at the high end of the range. So, I mean, that's a little pricey, but not crazy when you think about the fact that they brought in $541 million in revenue. $163 $163 million loss in 2019. I like companies that are growing and have losses. It means they're growing and putting more money into research and development nonstop. But in the year before that, they only did $380 million in revenue. So you can see that they're growing really, really well. Um, and only, you know, if you look at Epic's gaming forecast, they had $4.2 billion was their estimated revenue last year. So this is about eight times smaller than Epic Games, but Epic Games is one of the biggest gaming companies in the world. And these guys are starting out way you know, later than Epic did. It's kind of interesting. Unity has offered its gaming engine a software system that provides a framework in which developers can build their games without having to reinvent the wheel. And it's just for free. And they only start charging a licensing fee after a certain revenue milestone has been crossed. So I kind of like that idea where anyone can you know, build a game and create it and push it out to the market. And they only start getting charged once they do really, really well. So that incentivizes people to really you know, make the games as good as they possibly be. And obviously, this gaming market's huge. It's about $29 billion uh, total addressable market across both gaming and other industries. Unity is actually buying a ton of people nonstop. I think they did 12 mergers actually in the last, you know, since 2004. So that's been a long time, but they are obviously acquiring people to help grow their brand and get bigger. Super interesting, Tony. We love IPOs. Nanox, uh, which was the Pounders thesis pick a few weeks back, absolutely crushed it. So hopefully these can uh, 
be dominant as well. And speaking of the Pounders thesis pick, it is time for the Pounders thesis pick. Tony, last week, we gave you guys ISRG and CrowdStrike. Both of those we said to hang on for the long term. So didn't do a lot last week, but those are both two great companies that we see in the long term continuing to dominate. This week's winner, drum roll please, is Nick Steigar with Amwell. So Amwell, which is previously known as American Well, is a digital care delivery that will transform healthcare. So the ticker symbol here is AMWL, which is kind of like the Shopify, the Teladoc's Amazon, really agnostic provider that enables healthcare systems to create their own end-to-end virtual network. The last quarter, they saw monthly visits increase by over 300%. So Similar to Teladoc, Teladoc was actually only 200%. So Tony, is this Nanax 2.0? Yeah, so initially when I first started reading about this, um, I was super excited and I'm still pretty excited, uh, just a little less because I did look into the total valuation of the company, not just the IPO valuation, which you do need to look into, right? Because they'll say it's IPOing for 560 million, which is what it's doing. But that's at a valuation of 3.8 billion. And uh, you know, a lot of the time, that's always a huge difference in the number there. Um, but some interesting things about this, I do like the thought of it being the Shopify to Teladoc's Amazon, you know, obviously Shopify did super well with Amazon existing um, and they're continuing to dominate. So anything that kind of does that spade as a spade in an industry space like this, I think has a potential to dominate. Um, I do like the agnostic providing aspect of it. That's going to be really interesting for a lot of people who don't want to jump onto a whole bandwagon of like a conglomerate and they can want to do it themselves through this process. Um, but, you know, a little bit more about Amwell here. Over a decade of experience, Amwell powers telehealth solutions for over 240 health systems, comprised of 2,000 hospitals, 55 health plan partners, 36,000 employers, and they reach over 150 million lives. That's pretty interesting so far. One thing I do like to see is like big companies that I have respect for, like Google, making a $100 million investment into them. You know, that's always a good sign, especially when they're about at this stage, you know, not too big, not too small, but Google is putting their money where their mouth is and believing in this. Um, so, so far, they did two, uh, 5.6 million telehealth visits in their life, but they did 2.9 million of those in the first half of 2020. So basically 60% of all of their visits have come in the last six months. So you can clearly see how far like COVID has accelerated them and how they're continuing to grow and scale at this point. I mean, that's a huge increase. Like you basically doubled the amount of business you've had in six months of your entire life. And during the second quarter of 2020, Amwell saw average monthly uh, visit volumes and average monthly active providers delivering healthcare on its platform increase by 300% and 400% respectively compared to the first quarter of 2020. So that's also huge. Like, I mean, you can just see the growth here. I love seeing 300%, 400% numbers on here. And it's not valued at like 50 billion. You know, it's not something that you can see too often. Like you see Snow has these 130% and that is worth 20 billion plus, And it's going to be priced way higher in my opinion. Uh, I do like the fact that they're 97% hiring right now is up on the year from last year, which is an Avi metric. You know, he always likes to go to Glassdoor and see how many people are being hired because obviously you hire more people because you have more business and you need more people to work. So I do like also the fact that the revenue is increasing 77% year over year again. Gross margin is about 46.3%. So these are all pretty good numbers. I think it's a little bit lower than TDOC in some respects, but at an enterprise value IPO of 3.8 billion, it's not insane to me. And one thing I do want to point out here is the fact that the float is really, really small. So the IPO is only for 560 million. So the float to outstanding shares, which is how much you can buy and sell in the, you know, in the market, in the float. And that's only going to be 16%. And that can actually cause it to squeeze like crazy if people are interested in this and want to buy it, especially with the telehealth craze that's going on. That is really, really interesting to me. You know, their price to sales ratio is not horrible either. It's only 15 times. So I think that anyone who's interested in this space would probably hop on this just to see what it can do. So that's my thesis pick. Uh, and I'll definitely be getting in on this just you know, at least a little bit to see what it does. How does it compare to Teladoc? I know you you'd mentioned that Teladoc may even acquire this company. Is that something you, you believe in? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Teladoc is like the by far leader in this. I mean, I was looking at their like financial metrics. They're not too different in terms of like the percent that they're growing in revenue and you know margin and stuff. But what I do think is not really amazing to me is the fact that Teladoc did have 
higher revenue growth and margin growth before when it was a smaller company like this. Amwell is not doing as insane as Teladoc did. Of course, COVID bumped them up, but before that, the numbers weren't as staggering. But I do always say if you grow that exponential base, whatever it is, it'll continue to grow at that exponential base. So we'll have to see here. I'm pretty sure that they do about a quarter of the revenue now that Teladoc does, and they're going to be valued a little bit less than you know, one sixth the value. So I do think that this definitely is not going to be overvalued in the slightest. This is a pretty fair price for me. So is that a full on pound or are we tapping the table on this one? I'll tap the table. And then if people love it, I'll pound the table. I need to do more research in it. But so far, what I've seen is I like it. We keep it 100% honest. And as always, everyone cares about my thesis pick. But this week, we're starting something new. That is the Sports Center ring because my thesis pick is now turning into the lock of the week. We're going to keep this 99.9% focused on stocks, but with the NFL season kicking off, I think it'd be kind of fun to do one lock of the week each episode. So very quickly, my lock of the week, which I just gave out on Twitter previous to kickoff because this will not be edited and uploaded in time, is the Buffalo Bills over the New York Jets. So week one is always crazy in the NFL. And of course, this year is even crazier. There was no preseason. Teams have been shifting around quite a bit. Obviously, COVID's been in place, so you haven't been able to practice as much as typical. So I will preface this pick by saying no pick ever in the NFL or sports betting in general is ever an actual lock unless it's coming from Avi Locks. So just a quick tidbit of data. New York has won two of the past three meetings here with the AFC rivals. Sam Darnold's best option this year is Jamison Crowder. He's their top receiver. And while I am a big fan of Le'Veon Bell and should have a, a comeback season here, Buffalo Bills have Mr. Minneapolis Miracle himself, Stefan Diggs, now on the team. They got a solid receiver in John Brown and the poor man's Wes Welker in Cole Beasley. But their defense is absolutely stacked. The public is, of course, all over this pick as well, but for good reason. What I typically like to do is buy a half point, especially right now it's six and a half points. Um, I like to buy it down to six in this case. Or if you want to just be safe, money line is really an absolute lock. So let's try to start this segment 1-0. Enough of the sports locks, Tony. It is back to our regular scheduled programming and it could not come for a better time because it is time for Tony's Rule of the Week. Avi, honestly, it sounded like I was in the Matrix listening to these sports like picks. I, I honestly don't know what you were saying. Sounds good. I might throw in a, you know, a point or whatever you were saying. But it really does sound like you know what you say when you're listening to me talk about stocks and we have to cut things out of episodes <laughs> because I go on 10-minute tangents talking about a bunch of technicals and stuff. But anyway, time for the Rule of the Week. I got to say that the most important rule for this time period of uncertainty is just determining where you want to be by the end of the day, the week or the year, and how you want to get there. So I was saying earlier to make sure that you put your risk on, risk off, and chill modes on at the same time, at the the right time, you know, and and don't just think, well, hey, like maybe the market's going to go up. Hey, maybe the market's going to go down. You know, if you're not sure, that's okay to chill yourself out. But always consider where your P&L is, where your profit is. And where your account balance is. If you're not in a certain amount of cash that makes you comfortable, get into more cash. If you're not as exposed as you want to be because you sat out most of this and now you wanted to get back in, go ahead and expose yourself some more. Or do the opposite if you think we're going lower. So you just got to think about where you want to be by the end of the week, the day, the year. All of that matters because you're going to be the only one that looks at yourself to see where your goals are going to hit or not. And the way that you do that is by sticking to your own trading rules, your own trading strategies so that's your how there don't try to change it up and play like obviously like you were saying with when you're sports betting on tilt you know if you're just going normal normal locks and then you start doing parlays six ways to sunday and doing things way out of your comfort zone you're going to get smacked so don't go into tilt yeah you definitely don't want to go in all tilt i've done it before everyone has done it in the past so if you haven't you're either lying or a much better trader than we are but i think that's a huge point right just because you've been down, don't necessarily completely throw out your trading habits, right? Each trade, of course, is its own individual trade. It does not matter what the previous trade was. So don't go out there, like Tony said, and try to hit a 10-team parlay or a crazy weekly option to try to make it all back in one push. You're just going to continue to lose more and more money. So 
Tony, I think that's a phenomenal rule. So let's jump into some of these other questions. Mariana De La Rios had mentioned Lulu had a great earnings report with digital sales up over 100%. However, the stock tanked after earnings. We were expecting a lot more. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, this is just a typical case of buy the rumor, sell the news. Like you knew Lulu was doing well with their digital sales. Like they reported that a while back. And you saw the price of Lulu over, way over the price that it was before COVID. And I don't, you know, I can't say that people are obviously as hyped up about buying athletic gear now as they were before, even though it's like slightly higher end luxury. But regardless, like this thing went all the way to 400 and I don't think it went over 200s before COVID happened. So you got a double on this stock and now it's just going back to its fair valuation, which makes a lot of sense for me here. I mean, like, if we're talking about earnings reports, we can consider like Zscaler versus Crowd, like very, very similar space, very, very similar price stocks, very, very similar companies in general. CrowdStrike, we were talking about, Avi loves this one, and I like this one long term as well. But they ran up crazy into their earnings, and then they dove down after that. However, Zscaler had earnings the week after. So they had already dove in sympathy with the rest of the tech stocks. And as a result, they were actually up the day of earnings before the market kept on selling off. So you kind of can see that there's different results based on the timing of the market and where the price of a stock is after. Like I always like to think that earnings give the company a fair valuation based on where it is right there at that time. So if it's down, it's because they were overvaluing it. If it's up, it's because they were undervaluing it. And honestly, the metrics that make that happen can be super random sometimes. It's not always about revenue. It's not always about profit. It's about what, as a whole, what people are just assuming. Another question we got here is from Varun. So it's at Varun Charger. Great question around with the volatility going down. Instead of options as a hedge, so doing puts on a stock, is there a possibility to just simply short a stock instead? Also, what kinds of stocks would be a good option for shorting? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm happy here to talk about another alternative to puts because I know we have a lot of people of different walks of life and not everyone wants to just play options because they're worried about premiums and such. And that's very, very fine with me. One thing I don't love to do though is short stocks. However, if you're not playing puts or such, you can absolutely short stocks. So instead of just buying a hundred shares of a stock or 10 shares or whatever, you can sell short the shares in the same exact tab that you go to buy something, you go and you just change it from buy to sell short. And then basically, Basically, what happens is every time the stock goes down, you make a dollar for each share that goes down a dollar. And it's the same as if it were to go up, just on the reverse. However, the one thing I will say is shorting stocks in the long term, I think is a horrible idea. If you're trying to short Amazon for 10 years out, I'm pretty sure you're going to get your butt kicked. And if you try to short things like, you know, our favorite companies, like I would never short SE 10 years out. I'm holding SE 10 years out. But you can use shorting to play the day-to-day. I don't like to hold shorts way more than a couple days if I ever short. So it's something to be really concerned about because your upside risk is exponential, right? Like you're losing what you would make if you bought a stock. Imagine shorting Nanox at 20 and it went to 67. You just had lost like 300% more than what you put in. But there are some good stocks that you can short on that are making it easy. You can short the indices naturally like QQQ, those index ETFs, SPY, you can short the big tech stocks that are not like as crazy volatile as other ones. And they have smaller percent moves, right? So you're not going to get a 10% move in Amazon usually a day. So if you want to short a little bit of Amazon on these dives, that's okay to like head your tech portfolio. Tony, we got a question here from Gob at Mr. Gob Bluff. Tony, you said predictably irrational has influenced the way you view the market and approach to taking positions. He would love to hear the feedback on the book and how it may have changed your way of thinking, even if it's not even specifically tied to the market. Yeah, I mean, this book is probably, you know, one of the, I've probably read this book more times than I've read any other book, just because I find it so interesting to think about the psychology of human nature in general and how most people have the same biases and most people have the same tendencies. And this like group behavior, this group thing, confirmation biases, anchoring prices. It's, it's incredible what you see. Like just like to talk, touch on the first point that that's in the book of anchoring prices, right? So you had someone like Elon Musk issues a secondary price at 767 on Tesla. And like that becomes like a huge support to play around. It means really nothing, but that's just the price in your head or even the Tesla 420 price target. I mean, that is also like a huge thing. People ran it to past 420 after the split. Everyone was saying, oh, Tesla divided by five at 2100 is 420. 
So when you start hearing things like that, everyone else listens to that. And whether or not you agree with it, that's in your head somewhere that becomes in your subconscious. And anything like that can happen in the markets when people are saying SPX 5,000, like I'm saying in a few years, or SPX 2,000. When everyone's bearish, that anchoring all comes together. And I think what happens is when there's enough people that are anchored to similar prices, it doesn't generally go that way. Like you saw everyone and their mother was bullish at 3580. Then we crashed. Now everyone's bearish here. And I think that, you know, this is more and more bearish than I saw was in like than in June, which was also a similar drop. But I think that as a result, you know, that anchoring price that people are saying, well, we were at 3,600, we were just at 3,300. It's okay to think that we can go back to 3,600. And that's why there's a lot of uncertainty happening now too. So think about the anchor prices that make it really, really clear. But if there's too many anchor prices both ways, people are going to be confused. Really good point there, Tony. We got Jay Stern Biz asking a question around Etsy and generally why should stocks go up when they're added to the S&P? I like Etsy long term. It's one of my bigger holdings. I think that, you know, in the long term, that could easily go 150 to 200 in probably the next six months or so. But, you know, what I don't like is the fact that it did get added to the S&P 500 and it had not been rising a ton. However, who knows, maybe it would have been selling off a lot more if it wasn't being added because it hasn't significantly dropped from where it was in the last few days. But what happens generally here is that let's say that you have Kohl's, for instance, and which, you know, did get just kicked out of the S&P 500. And then you add Etsy to the S&P 500. So I don't know what the value of Kohl's is. It's probably way less than Etsy. So you add Etsy, which means that the, now the percentage that makes up the S&P 500, you have to sell a little bit of each position to add to that position of Etsy. So what happens is people are forced to sell a tiny, tiny bit of Amazon, a tiny, tiny bit of Apple and add into their Etsy just to allocate the proper percentages because Etsy is like a, no, not a very small company. I mean, it's not a huge company, but you know, there is still like, at least a couple decimal points of change that has to happen there. And so that'll, you know, that'll happen if Tesla gets added, for instance, you'll see that they'll have to sell a lot of the big boys to rebalance that and add back into Tesla. And so that is why they have to go up on the S&P 500, because there's a lot of these funds that track the S&P 500 stock for stock. Super helpful. At AxT Money has our last question of the week here. So back in June, Tony rotated perfectly into UAL, CCL, BA, etc. Looking at the charts, am I seeing another opportunity here in these names in the next week or two? Yeah. So one thing I want to touch on here is the fact that these like beaten down COVID names and these values, cyclicals, energy, like all these stocks have not been crashing significantly with the market. Like granted, the rut has gone down a lot, but these things are holding up way stronger than tech. So it could be a slight rebalance as most people think COVID's actually coming to end based on the data becoming way lower all the time in terms of like infection rates in the U.S. So that could be potential play for me. However, I don't want to hold these long terms. I already sold out of most of these. And I don't really want to get back in. I will play if I see something crazy, like UAL is going to run like five to 10 points. I'll play some weekly calls or something. But, you know, for long term for me, I'm looking more into getting back into tech because that hasn't run at all in the last two weeks. In fact, it's just been dropping and it's dropped significantly. The QQQs were at 307 and now it's 266. So that's a significant drop, right? That's close to 20% down. So I will definitely be looking at that sector for a bounce because of course, like, the market can't necessarily like run huge without tech running with it. Of course, it can get held up by these cyclicals, but in order to get that rippy happening, you need to have the tech come. We love rippy mode, Tony. With not a ton of earnings coming up, I know we have Adobe and FedEx on Tuesday here. Can you just share where you think the market's going? I know everyone looks at you as Optimus Prime, always being confident, always being optimistic, but where do you think the, the market's going? Are we at the top? Are we at the bottom? Or where do you see this heading into the election? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that if we're going to bottom, it'll be quite soon. I don't think it'll be la- longer than the next week or two. And so the main thing I want to look out for here is that big ranges need to hold. So you've seen that the S&P 500, it cracked that 3349 level and went down to 3310. And so most people would consider that to be a huge fail because it 
failed the double retest of that line. But I do like the fact that you get those fake breakdowns that happen all the time, right? So you get that it drops like 30, 40 points more than everyone was expecting. And then it reverses and pops back up. And you saw this with the general market, like after what is it? I think after like 2008 or two, some around that time, like that exactly that exact thing happened in the markets. And then we shot up to crazy new all time highs. So that might be possible to happen here. I do know that the rut is the one that bottomed us in March. And you know, before text and everything sold, the rut did not break out at the top. So that would have been a great indicator that I should have been looking at myself, you know, even though I, I did call the top, but it would have been more, you know, I would have felt more confident about my call had I noticed that the rut had not gone anywhere as the techs were getting overextended and overextended. So it just was chilling in the same little base. And now it went far lower. However, it is chilling in this lower base now. So I think what needs to happen is you need to see the rut bottoming out. You need to see techs have a huge pop, rip and hold. And if that doesn't happen, like we'll, we can go down to my targets on the S&P 500, you know, 3280, 32.32 absolute line in the sand. I'll go really big bear under there, but I don't think that happens. Nothing has changed about the stimulus. Like we will get, in fact, I guarantee you will get more stimulus probably this week, maybe next, because the Fed did say they had more news coming two weeks ago that it's coming. And this would be this week. So you'll hear something this week. I guarantee you that if not, the Fed lied. I don't think they did. If we do go lower, I bet there'll be more more and more of this stimulus. You know, the Fed is so in the markets now that if anything wrong happens, they, they will jump in, in my opinion. And I think that if they don't, they're going to go underwater too. You know, interest rates also are still low for the next five years. So nothing has changed about my thesis that equities are the place to be. It's just about when you want to be in them. Super helpful as always, Tony. I am looking at my watch and it is about to be kickoff here for week one of the NFL. We are going to see Monday has our own kickoff. It feels like it every single week. Uh, I look at my watch. It's 930. I think about it like an NFL game. Can't wait for kickoff for the market to open. Wanted to wrap things up this week. Of course, as always, want to thank our fans. Tony, sign us off, baby. I'm happy to. And I just want everyone to know if you're having a tough time in the markets, it's okay to just take a step back, chill, just kind of reevaluate yourself. It's a lot easier to miss the opportunity on the upside than to get crushed on the downside. Trust me, it hurts a lot less. So it's okay to take your time off the markets until things get better and set yourself up for success. Don't put yourself in a position where you're not going to be able to crawl out of the hole you dug yourself into. I know that that's depressing, but I do have to say this, like, you know, in my whole life, I've blown up a lot of accounts when I was 16, 17, 18, and this and that. And that is really, for me, that's the only way to learn how to not blow up an account, which I haven't done in years now, of course. So that is something that you have to understand that not everyone who does well in the markets right now has always done well in the markets. You know, I started and I think I was terrible for years. And it just is me sticking to it, me understanding my goals, not lying to myself that made the difference. So everything can happen that you want at Two Pounders. Life's your oyster. And I'll see you next week. And I hope you guys kill it. Have a great week, Pounders. (laughs) 